парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце наше... Well, hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm here with Rusana Novikova. Uh, hopefully, Margaret will be returning in a couple of weeks. I haven't figured that out yet, but she's gone doing something else. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions to help keep this podcast going, allow me to throw some money at my uh, two co-hosts, not a lot of money, but whatever I have. So if you'd like to support this endeavor, uh, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Well, this week we have an interview with Olga Petri about her book, Places of Tenderness and Heat, The Queer Milieu of Fendisiekel St. Petersburg. And of course, the, when I saw that this book came out, um, I was very interested to talk to Olga because I want, I've been wanting to devote more interviews to queer history in Russia, and this looked like perfect opportunity. So why don't you go ahead and introduce her and we'll get right into the interview. Olga Petri is the Leverhulme Newton Trust Early Career Research Fellow in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge. Her first book is Places of Tenderness and Heat, The Queer Milieu of Fendosiecle St. Petersburg, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Olga Petri. So you have this wonderful book, um, you know, it, I, I love that you, you've done this amazing, interesting topic on the history of male sexuality in St. Petersburg at the turn of the century. Um, and, and really, this type of histories I, I really love. And your book is called Places of Tenderness and Heat, The Queer Milieu of Fendisiekel St. Petersburg. And how did you get interested in this topic? I think, you know, my first inspiration actually came from the city itself. St. Petersburg, my hometown, from walking around in it as a teenager, as a young adult. Um, I left city when I was 23 for my studies, so um, my kind of adolescence took place in the city. I think abstractly, I envisioned this project more than 20 years ago, I would say, when I first became interested in the history of my city, where, you know, all my known ancestors had lived and where I was born, as I said already. So, and I think I kind of grew up steeped in the sober stories and histories of my own family. And of course, I liked to walk around and especially during the white nights, it's very romantic, it's beautiful. And I, I have to admit, I was a very, I was, I'm a very romantic individual. So I imagined the life of great people of the past and as you can imagine that in the 19th century, these great people were mostly men. And one of these men was my favorite poet and composer and writer, Mikhail Kuzmin, and who, like me in a way, that's how I imagined at least back then, um, walked in, on the streets, often aimlessly alone, like me, <laughs> in the search of love, I mean, friendship, inspirations. And he's mysterious and yet very bright poetry and fiction made me, I don't know, maybe word curious is not the right word, but I think, yes, it made me very curious. And then I found out that he had been queer and was a part of this really vibrant and diverse queer milieu. Um, yes, I think that the, the main in inspiration came from my love for the city and for my interest in, in his work. Well, you know, I, I have to ask this then. Um... You know, you spent your teenage years, as you said, in St. Petersburg, looking around in this wonderful, beautiful city. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, when I think back to my teenage and, and your book, I should say, is about place and space. Are there what what about in your like personal experience with the city, since you're focusing so much on various places where queer people would you know, hang out essentially in St. Petersburg. Are there any places where you, did you have places where you hung out and how that kind of shaped you and your identity and practices? You know, it will not come as a surprise that many places I discussed in my book, I actually overlap with the places I hang out. You know, my, <laughs> my apartment where I grew up, 
uh, is located in the middle of Litsi in their borough, which I discussed in my chapter four. <laughs> so I hang out, you know, Mikhail Kuzmin lived next to me in a way on the parallel street to, to the place where I grew up. So this is the same streets, the same uh, topography in a way of the city. Uh, for example, I... I very much like the the places around um, Mikhailovsky Garden, Tavrichesky Garden, and I used to go to Tavrichesky Garden a lot as a teenager and as a young adult. So I think, and I, I knew then later actually that Kuzmin was a big fan of Tavrichesky Garden. So I think that like intimate knowledge of these places, of course, hundred years later, informed my research to a great degree. I'm not sure that I can articulate it very well, and I clearly don't discuss it in my book. But yes, you're right. So the places, they overlap and they informed um, the understanding of the city. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, when you're going through these old records, and granted, as you said, you know, this is 100 years ago, so don't we want to over-romanticize thing, things? But, you know, I think you're right when when one has a research topic and you're, you're devoting so much time and energy to it that, you know, romanticism, a romantic relationship with it is not surprising with the subject matter. And I, I would imagine that the, the fact that you are familiar with these spaces, that when you see, would see them in, in your source material, that would give you an, uh, you had a sense, like a certain feel, even though if it's temporarily removed. Absolutely. It gives you also the perspective, you know, on the location. So I would know, for example, that Kuzmin, it, it will take Kuzmin, for example, five minutes to get to the Richeski Garden from the place where he used to live, because I know the geography that well of that particular borough. So, and then I could actually say, okay, that was possible or not. So I could extrapolate this personal knowledge and encounter of the city to the archival materials. Or, for example, there was this file about two young men who strolled on on Boulevard and that they got to the to the bridge. So I knew exactly which bridge. I knew exactly how he would look back on the bridge and see his friends probably uh, committed suicide. So I could imagine that even the angle of their looks um, to some extent. Of course, it's 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 a some might say it's a huge um, kind of exaggeration. But yes, that's true. This intimate knowledge helped me a lot, even in that regard, you know, knowing the names of streets in pre-revolutionary names of them and how they're located on the which angles sometimes and what the distances, they all helped. Yeah, no, it. I would. I, I had this experience when I was in Moscow a couple of years ago where uh, somebody I'm researching, I went to see the building, the last apartment he lived in you know, from the outside. And it's a, it's an eerie feeling because, you know, as, as researchers, historians, you know, everything we, we deal with dead people, but still it, it has, there's this weird feeling when you, you're standing in the same place where they walked at some point in time, you know, it really had, it, it, I don't know, it, it's a, an emotional response. I don't know how to capture it myself. You're right. You're right. That's, it's very emotional. And maybe therefore, I just wanted to kind of, to conclude my thoughts on that. It was a very difficult project to do at the end, maybe because of that, because it was so close to, physically close to to me, to my soul, if I'm not afraid of these words. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the first thing that struck me about your book, well, I shouldn't say the first thing, the, the subject matter struck me first, but let's say the second thing that struck me is you have perhaps one of the longest sections on terminology I've seen in an academic book. Usually these things are just kind of a blurb. There's no really important, crucial information. Um, but you really kind of, you have a sustained discussion of, of the challenges of terminology and methodology in, in studying this. So can you talk about, you know, this problem that you faced with dealing with the history of male homosexuality and the, the terms used in their source material? Yeah, you're right. Um, the section both about terminology at the beginning and then I think I talk about methods in, in, in introduction a lot. And that's because there are some of the biggest challenges that may have prevented others from doing this work, I think, sooner and almost deterred me from doing this. And they also impose their limitation on the book's conclusions. So I thought it is important to be very upfront about it. And so, but you kind of asking actually two questions, one about methodology, right? And then other about terminology. So let me address them separately, if you don't mind. And I will start with methodology. So we are talking about here about a phenomenon that relied on, and even from today's perspective, almost implausible combination of publicity, right? 
and secrecy at work, right, to work. So in an environment where there were dire legal sanctions, for instances, of officially detected sex between men, right, at very least, plausible, plausible deniability had to be maintained. So on the one hand, um, much as today, men interested in sex with other men relied on public forums to meet, like, I don't know, um, chat groups, dating site, clubs. You know, these public forums were public spaces in the city. And this enabled not only sexual opportunity, but also social connections, including others that bridge difference of class, age, and ethnicity. So uh, one important implication for me here, um, that what, none of this is was very well documented, right? So if you do, if you are going to do something illegal, in most cases, you don't write about it, right? Even in your diary. And that was true, for example, for Kuzmin, who was um, euphemistic about it, although usually very clear from my perspective. Similarly, constables were, were careful. Minimal precautions were enough to prevent them from catching anyone in the act. And as other researchers before me had correctly determined, uh, most notably Dan Healy, sodomy was hardly ever persecuted. So was it possible that police found other ways of making life difficult for queer men, containing their spatial practices? To find this, I couldn't just look at a few dozen court and medical cases of men who had been caught. So, And that was the main kind of methodological challenge, how to find these cases where for men who were not caught, essentially. <laughs> so, and I think that's about um, methods and regarding. Well, let me, let me just comment really quick, quick on that, because, because this is, this is a problem, you know, of, of a lot of history in that you only, in ma many cases, you only see your subjects if the state sees them. And how do you, and then of course you know and I, this is something I want to get to later. But um, how do you how do you construct a narrative that doesn't reflect just reflect the state? See, I think the state comes with many forms, right? And uh, I at the beginning decided that I will not limit myself to, for example, the police institutions or the secret police institutions. And I will extend my search into the, for example, uh, sanitary commission reports or city council reports more broadly and look at the way in which public spaces were organized. And I was rewarded for this approach because I could see how many reg urban regulations were attuned to the Queer, sex, uh, queer patterns or queer movements and encounters. You know, we'll, we can look at the bathhouse origin of, of 1879, for example, and how, in essence, they were trying to suppress homosexual um, activities or any um, kind of any strange activities in the bathhouse. If they wanted to create this perfect place, hygienic place to create well-behaved workers in the city or individuals in the city, right? But they, not impl implicitly, but they significantly contributed to the way in which the queer milieu functioned in the city. And the same applies, for example, to the way in which they deal with the public toilets or urinals in the city. So there are these examples. So you, you just need to, I think, to kind of to overcome this idea that the state comes in the form of a police or medical forensic discussions and look further. And I believe you will be rewarded. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, so let's, let's talk about then a, a bit about terminology because you, you explained that you use the word queer rather than gay, homosexual, the other terms available. So why, why queer? Yeah, this is, this is a, this is a tricky one. Um, and not just because we're talking about, Russian primary text. So it's always the question of translations. Uh, but even, you know, something as basic as a concept of gay, homosexual, and queer, as again, uh, again, I'm referring to Dan Healy here, as he collectively explained that they only began to emerge and has considerably evolved since the 19th century. So this, this section of terminology is crucial because it actually was explaining what exactly happening. So what is queer for me here? It's more in my in my section of knowledge, I explained that it's very close to what um, the, the Russian word grammatically or literate, which some participant of the community used to describe any man willing to participate in flirtation, uh, flir uh, flirtation and 
sexualized physical contact with someone of his own, let's say, biological sex, right? So, but queer is broad enough, um, but also it suggests some sort of this movements and encounters between men who would not identify themselves as homosexual. The term homosexual I use in my book um, as it was actually used in 19th century literature, describing acts. Um, and gay, I don't actually use gay um, because it's not really applicable in that historical moment. So it sounds like with a word like queer, you're trying to capture your... A you're, a, you're trying to decenter actual sexual practice uh, for one that uh, a term that or a concept that captures a, an ethics of behavior, of practices within these. As as you say, and and this is follows to my next question is the queer milieu. You're you're talking about a space, right? Um, so what talk about why is this spatial approach so important? It is important because it allows us to understand what it actually meant to be in the city. Uh, it comes closest to establishing a picture, as I said, of what it meant to be queer in the city, what one actually had to do to find opportunities for sex, a communion, without mutually uh, disguise as a start. Of course, these special patterns are very difficult to find for contemporary historians, but they were remarkably stable, um, even while identities uh, were not often, they were not that stable, if you see what I mean here. So the conception of this milieu is successful when the efforts to stray, to trace this emerged identities, oh, I think I'm losing it here, may I start from, <laughs> from the beginning? Uh, so yeah, I think, let me start differently. Queer itself is a spatial metaphor. As Sarah Ahmed points out, that queer is a spatial term. I don't remember the exact quote right now, but I think she talks about how queer is a twisted sexuality that does not, does not follow a straight line, and sexuality itself is banned and crooked. So I use the term queer milieu when I talk about a group of men who were prepared to make themselves known to one another and who were overlike, so and they shared these desires and they knew about specific patterns in, a, in the city. But these patterns and these desires is not just about the queer men, it's also about spatial entente with urban authorities, constables in a bit, passers-byers, who were also part of this queer milieu. Because the queer milieu itself doesn't exist like a queer milieu in, 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 in above. Actually, it was a part of the city. And I think that's one of the most important kind of arguments of the book, that the queer milieu did not exist in isolation from the city. It is a part of the city. And what I'm trying to do here is to see how these queer patterns and queer movements actually cross or overlapped with other um, city stories, cities' patterns, and how they interacted and what what actually queer men and then were doing in public spaces. I think this is one of the things that strikes me about this this approach that you're using and the way you're you're describing the queer milieu is um you know it's connect like you said it's connection to the city the fact that the state through police and other regulatory institutions are shaping that milieu right it doesn't exist as an isolated space outside of everyday life um, so let's let's talk about police, because you you're you're getting at you know the basically the beat cops more or less and how they deal with these these issues and and I have to say when you were mentioning you know the bathhouse law for example the the, the level of consciousness in the sense of trying to regulate queer practices is is striking so talk about these police and and what did they do and how did they influence this queer milieu I don't know whether I need to. Uh, remind our readers that in Imperial Russia, the homosexuality was a criminal offense. Um, it was criminalized by the criminal code introduced by imperial degree in 1845, but still in effect in 1917. And, um, but interestingly, um, in Cyrus Russia, 
so homosexuality was criminalized only specific sexual acts, right? The acts between men. Unlike in Britain, for example, no supplementary legislation explicitly uh, targeted cruising or male prostitution. It didn't exist in imperial uh, Russia. So given that, sodomy law were effectively a dead letter. And this apparent shortcoming, as, as Dan Healy writes about this, this apparent shortcoming in a country where the otherwise obsessed with regulating everything actually again made me really curious. Yes, he, he Dan Healy's writes like it's this sodomy law was a dead letter. In fact, there were very little cases of persecution of homosexual men in, in the country, indeed. So the question for me was uh, how we can find out what constables actually did to curtain queer spatial patterns on the ground, as you say, you know, on the beat, on a daily basis. And this chapter where I talk about policing was, as I said, it was the hardest chapter to write for me. And I don't want to recall the whole chapter here, but I thought I would give you a story of one man, particular man, Ludwig Adamovich Zimmel, and I think it's kind of the answer in a nutshell to some extent. So Zimmel was arrested one night, um, in 1900 on Nevsky Prospect. And Nevsky Prospect is the biggest and the busiest street in St. Petersburg. It's a, by one of the most famous cruising side. And then he was banished from the city for several years. And he was a repeated offender. And petty crime strategies were used to, dis- to send him away. And it was not, if you look at this, there are so, like hundreds of men and women arrested every night on Nevsky Prospect for loitering, for pickpocketing. So it's, it, this case seems to be completely trivial. But what makes the case unusual is that here, unlike in thousands like it, there was an explicit link to homosexual sex. An anonymous letter filled in his case log said he was trying to fa- find male partners. So it shows that a broad range of laws and regulations, the specific case, and I discuss it in details and chapter, of course. So a broader range of laws and regulations were actually mobilized to address visible queer spatial patterns and movements. How consistent these patterns, for example, how consistent arresting people for petty crime strategies when they cruise, we don't know. It's hard to tell. But their very existence opens up this the scope of discussion at risks to which queer men were actually exposing the city. On the whole, I would say that found ways, I would say that the found ways to negotiate a broader, consistent mundane uh, of queer policing, the men on the beat, they have to satisfy their superiors while also doing only limited damage to the queer milieu described in my book. Right, so that was a kind of a negotiation or discretion involved, as I call it in my book, between kind of satisfying the orders from the superior, but also doing some work on a bit, but not really trying that hard, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so, did did the police, you know, using these various ways to regulate queer street life, did it come in? Were there particular campaigns? Like there's a moral panic of sorts, so they they crack down for a period of time, and then there's a there the kind of less of a crackdown, a more sustained you know regulation. Did it? Did, I'm, I'm kind of also trying because I'm trying to also get a sense of you know home uh, homosexual homosexuality on the streets of St. Petersburg in the public imagination. I think it's very hard to tell, of course, and somehow I don't discuss it in my book whether or not there was a kind of moment when there were particularly more discussions about that. But I think actually around 1910, uh, that uh, probably after 90, uh, between 1908 and 1910, that was a time when I could identify many secret directives uh, which directly talked about deviant behavior of various kinds in the city, including actually uh, homosexuality, but also prostitution and other things. Also around that time, Mikhail Kuzmin was brought to court for publishing his uh, novel, uh, The Wings. And in fact, he was prosecuted. Um, and I think I can even um, show off here to say I was the one who discovered that. <laughs> so so he, he was prosecuted for this and he was, um, he was given to, so he had to pay 200, 200 rubles or two years of prison, but his friends helped him. So, so around that time, probably there was a kind of attempt to to suppress homosexual life in the city, 
but we have a couple of instances here. So I wouldn't, I don't want to be um, over exaggerating that, I would say. Yes. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a, like a, you can't really identify any kind of formal campaign, but I would imagine that his case probably created, you know, a, a public stir. <laughs> exactly. It, it, he, the way I discovered that it was published in one of the biggest, actually, daily newspapers. And he was, you know, it was a note about publishing, like publishing. He was charged for pornography. You see, it was a, you know, kind of a serious offense. Um, in a way. So let's talk about the streets and these urban spaces because, you know, because of homosexuality being criminalized, um, it it exists on the streets amongst other marginal communities, right? It's not surprising that you said a few moments ago, you know, it was lumped in with prostitution and, you know, other types of petty crimes, marginal people of society are all mixed in and flowing. So talk, talk about this relationship between the streets and queerness? And for many queer urban histories, it's one of the biggest questions, right? Um, not just for my book, but I think, you know, every book you, you take from the bookshelf about this topic, you, you will find a discussion about the relationship between streets and queerness. In cities, I think queer men, I mean, queer men in particular, had to have this critical mass to form a milieu, right? But still, they remained at a, a minority, and in Cyrus Sabitis' work, as elsewhere, had to fear the persecution, right? But in part, the street were the forum, I think I was uh, used already this forum, the forum for what, you know, where they could perform this significant glance, right? But there are much more to this also. Along the parks, ports, promenades, um, you know, they were open to all and allowed for patrons to mix in and mingle into a marriage. And of course, the rise of leisure culture during the second half of the 19th century added semi-public spaces such as restaurants, cafes, shopping arcades to this mix, right? So queer men could now go on deliberately to plunge into the network of what, again, Mikhail Kuzmin called familiar strangers. And I actually, that was my first title of the book, The World of Familiar Strangers, who might then become lovers, maybe not. So none of this is particularly new. Just to, It's not just for St. Petersburg, it's elsewhere. Still, um, St. Petersburg is unique to some extent with this high prevalence of crime, the extreme seasonality, it's cold, simply, sometimes, there. <laughs> the influx of very poor single people from the countryside, um, probably more than any other European cities at that time. In all of this, one image helped me to understand the relationship better. It's that of Flaneur, of course. And typically, imagine in Paris, it's a dandy, usually male, well-dressed, who walks aimlessly to see and be seen. Uh, but... In fact, he could also be a pickpocketer, a spy, a terrorist, and an artist with equal success, right? He could be a male prostitute or his client or just someone on the lookout for kind of a soul, a kind of soul, right? So, and I add one thought on that, that there's been a lot of work recently of winner-takers old system, such as, for example, such as the internet. Well, cities are like that. So all the infrastructure is designed to get you in and out of the center, right? In places like, for example, I discuss in, 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 in my book, Anichka Bridge, especially in my first chapter, uh, takes this kind of center of the queer milieu. It was an important place, right? And they provide anonymity and eligible spatial order, as well as opportunities to dip into more private spaces, right? Where they can explore, you know, their desires. I mean, one of the things that struck me, let's say, is these spaces provide both, as you said, anonymity, safety, but also it and it allows people who exist in their daily lives outside, you know, who are quote unquote in the closet to pass into that space and pass out of it, right? There's a, it, it, it creates both a, you know, that, I think that that space of a potential anonymity because it's mixing with so many different types of populations. It is the place where you discover something about yourself. And I think it's true not just for the 19th century or 20th century of British work. It's true for, the, yeah, for now, even for many young people who just go around and meet somebody who would change the way they look around, like on themselves. So, yeah, something very, you know, persistent in that.
Well, let's talk about one of these, a really important space uh, for queerness, and that is the bathhouse. Now, the bathhouse, there's nothing ex exclusive about Russia and the bathhouse being a queer space. Uh, but the bathhouse in Russia has an incredibly important cultural identity. It has a very important pl place for masculinity um, that, that, you know, I think perhaps gives a certain type of masculinity that's different perhaps than in other places. So talk about, but at the same time, it's also a place to engage in taboo and illicit relations and acts. Um, so talk about this, rel this relationship between the bathhouse as a, you know, a site of culture, so much Russian cultural identity, um, gender, gender performance and, uh, sexual pleasure. You know, interest, you know, and just interestingly, the thought I just had in my mind that originally this chapter was less about homosexuality. <laughs> it was more about the outward regulation that slowly came to to that shape. And um, yeah, so I think, of course, there is a connection with the village past, a very strong connection to the village past where for much of the year, it provided really the only opportunity for washing. And I would say that in the late period, St. Petersburg bathhouses, commercial bathhouses, to be clear, were for many, many people, the only opportunity for washing. But apart from that, of course, apart from the hygienic purposes, it was a place for common in, uh, as we, we can say it, for socialization, even kind of borderline subversive socialization, right? So when it's unclear what's happening, um, between individuals there. It was a kind of, again, it's the urban forum where people from different classes could interact freely to some extent. And we can see the glimpses of that in literature, in uh, art, a deep, and various cultural production of the late 19th century, right? So it's 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 very clear image of specific Russian identity playing out there. You know, this, we can be together in very one hot place and just be Russian there. Uh, almost like this is the only place where we can be Russian. Um, but on the other hand, right, urban authorities wanted to build a new kind of, of rational place where citizens would be clean, healthy, and well-behaved. And I think this tension between these aspects, this kind of mentality of bathhouses being communal, being uniting everyone, was enormous and almost led to the system collapse, actually, as I tried to explain in my chapter. And for several decades, bathhouses were consistently being shut and sealed. And no, no one knew was built for many years because authorities just trying to figure out what to do with this space, which is full with all sorts of relations, like socialization, including homosexual sex. And the queer spatial patterns, as I tried to argue in my book, was a key um, in this tension. And there was, because they were associated with the source of revenue for the people who kept the bathhouses going, particularly attendants, who, of course, engaged in homosexual sex, right? So ultimately, the tension emerged victorious, but male sex and relation became even more entrenched in the, in the queer milieu. My chapter and my take on commercial bathhouses is less about cultural identity. Um, as I say in my book, I try to work with the patterns of movements and relationship and regulations rather than the construction of identities. I describe how the specific laws, urban regulations, contributed to the stronger commercialization of sex in the commercial bathhouses by the late 19th century. And I less talk about cultural identity, I think. And for that, you need to consult the brilliant book of Witten Pollock about Russian banyas, I think. You know, the and, and you've already hinted that this is that the already in, in our discussion about spaces in St. Petersburg, but the queer, queer milieu is, is, as you point out, an emotional space, right? The, te the title of your book, <laughs> it's exactly that, right? Tenderness uh, in terms of the, you know, you know, passion, these kinds of things, caring, love, and heat, sexual desire, sexual pleasure. Um, so how talk about this, how this affective, emotional aspect of this, the spaces of the queer milieu. I don't know. I, I wonder if I can just um, propose that I talk a bit about the title here. Because I think it's it's quite important, and it refers to this question. Because of course, 
the title, as I said, it refers to a spatial pattern, as you observed it, which played an important role in late imperial St. Petersburg queer milieu. But the term is actually not my own. Um, instead, again, the, the title is kind of taken from, from the 1906 diary of Mikhail Kuzmin. And um, on the 15th of June, um, we read a note that he and his friend, the painter Mikhail Somov, spoke of creating a map um, centered on the Tavrychevsky garden. So on that map, the garden was figured as the tender, please forgive me my French, the land of tenderness or love. And it was following the famous example of Madame Secretary famous, like the, the, the I think it's the French now, but carte de tender, this map. And they both were very familiar with this and they wanted to create something like that. So Somos was to, draw, to draft the map and Kuzmin to compose a poem entitled, and again, please forgive my French, I think it's Voyage de Pot de Tendre à Pouchot, which means as a trip from tenderness or mere desire, uh, love to the hot countries, uh, to the land of sexual passion and lust. And the map would show a pattern that connected one of the parks, the Richeski Garden, which I discussed in chapter five, to several nearby bathhouses specifically by saying a uh, bathhouse nearby. So tenderness refers to Latin possibility of sex, friendship and love in the garden, and heat uh, by contrast refers to a sexual passion that might be pursued in this uh, in this in this um, bathhouses. But returning to the question, so this is quickly about the title, and returning to the question about emotional spaces, I think um, you asked me already how I got interested in the history of male homosexuality in Russia, and I think I talked already about my passion for the city, my love for the city, because it means poetry, and I think to some extent, you know, this is something is central for my project, because for Kuzmin, St. Petersburg was the city where the sky, and I quote here, the sky poured some kind of love. And of course, he was in love with the city. Sometimes he hated the city. But he also was scared, intimidated, and harassed in the city. And I use the term emotional refuge in my book to talk about how this urban environment provided a secure space for queer socialization. Because I thought it's really important to finish the book with, um, as Kuzmin always did, with something bright, with something cheerful in a way. I mean, I know it's not really cheerful, not the correct word, but something which gives a reassurance that this man could find a refuge in an otherwise rather, not a hostile, but a difficult, a complex place. And Tavrychevsky Garden, Tavrida, as Kuzmin called, provided a release from these prevailing emotional norms and allowed relaxation from emotional efforts with or without an ideological justification, right? And it, it kind of, what is very important here is this rituals around cruising, uh, in this garden. And I think that's what gives this relaxation. Actually, the cruising is not as a just a pursuit of sexual gratification of sex, but actually it's research for just for companies. You know, he calls it a gang, you know, people who just nice to be around, laugh around. They teased constables. They, they did funny things in the garden. It was their emotional refugee. So, yes, I think that's, that's the way St. Petersburg was an emotional space, right? Was a place where they could explore their desires without not always, and I put it very cautiously, risking being harassed or persecuted. I, I don't I don't know if the, the source your source material revealed any of this, but in a lot of uh gay spaces there are there are so, there are like symbols and signs so gay men can recognize one another did you is there something similar or did the space you know the space itself might provide that identification but did you get a sense of there's you know codes of codes to be able to you know identify each other yes yes of course let's start with the space space itself can provide identification they would go to the richeski garden during the day and early afternoons and they would find each other there all right, so they will go to specific bathhouses where they know that they could find some company. But apart from that, clothing, uh, for example, Kuzmin liked the yellow shirts 
to show himself in that. He was very extravagant in his clothing. They would apply some sort of makeup, um, blush, for example, and he talks about it in his diary. I also got a sense that a yellow daffodil, and I really wanted to have a real daffodil on the cover of the book. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, yellow daffodil was actually, in fact, the flower they would put in the coat, coat to show that they belong to this community, which is fascinating. And, you know, it's literally two lines in his diary, but it just opens it up. Very interesting. Um, you know, you could just imagine walking with a yellow daffodil. For me now, daffodils means a very different thing than it was before. So, yeah, these kind of things, of course, um, they existed in the city and they could they definitely help them to, to find their gang, as Kuzmin used to say. What was your favorite source or story from your research, the one that just sticks with you, that you tell everybody? There are many, actually, stories and sources. And I... But maybe I will combine a story and a source in one. Because I remember very well the moment when I realized that I was onto something. And it was in June 2014, it, it was my one of the first trips um, to St. Petersburg to, to do archival research. And I was reading this huge police logs, files, and I was about actually to go home. It was evening. And I was, as I was, as I was untidying one of these, you know, brittle little knots <laughs> that someone had just tied more than 100 years ago. And I, I believe I was the first one to open that folder since it was closed in, in, 90, in October 1910. <laughs> So, because you can see how many people access the files. So I was literally the first one. And all of a sudden, I came across a group of letters between constables, uh, like the uh, the police station's constables, the borough level constables, with a secret directive at- at- attached to them. And this directive was from Count Venderov. He was deputizing for the city's mayor and the head of police in October 1910. And it, basically, this secret directive was dispatched to every police station in the city. So every police borough policeman read that. It had required them to identify and collect information about men suspected of hosting gathering at which men engaged in homosexual sex. When I read that directive, I... <laughs> I wasn't all. I, I, I actually couldn't breathe for a while. I, I remember that moment clearly. This flew in the face of what had been not only my understanding of the queer milieu, right? It was confirmation that at the highest level, the police made attempts to expand police surveillance into private apartments to undercut consexual male homosexual sex and socialization. But the most interesting, actually, is coming from the responses. You know, it's one thing to have the secret directive coming from above, but right. But actually, what happened to Windows Initiative? Why it was frustrated, and I will tell you in advance, it was frustrated. <laughs> seems to cut to the core of how both the queer milieu and the state, on a level, you know, the street worked, and it gave my investigation, investigation kind of the running room, and was one of the several doors into the past that opened so kind of unexpectedly on that evening. So yes, I think that that was my, one of my favorites, you know, stories and sources, yeah. Oh, I, I love those moments where you, uh, you know, you just hit something and you're like, wow, this is what I've been going through all of this time. This is what I've been looking for. Um, my, my, very, my very good colleague and friend, Phil Howell here at the geography department calls it um, archival gold. <laughs> Absolutely, that was our Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know, going back to this methodological issue, um, you know, you say that that the reader might note that your book is not necessarily about queer men, but about the city, about the authorities. Um, because, you know, your sources where you have an unmediated queer voice are few and far between. Um, can, can the queer Russian man speak? <laughs> and this sense of how, in terms of representation, like how do you, what are the, some of the challenges you had of trying to represent these, his, you know, these figures, these subjects that their voices are so mediated and in some cases silent? Yeah, I think I kind of spoke a bit about this, that my challenge was writing about queer men as a historical geographer, but not as their narrator or a voice. 
And not being a man, I think, made it a bit easier since it kept me in check the temptation to try to speak for them, which I didn't want to do. And and I think my book actually proposes a way forward. We can look at what people did, even if we might need we will never know how they felt about this, right? This is very regrettable, but it is no reason to refrain for trying to kind of reconstruct a queer milieu. Right? So there are many challenges with represented queer men, specifically in Russia, of course, you know, given that there are so few surviving diaries, interrogation reports, right? Though I personally wouldn't call the latter intermediated either, because of course they are. Um, so, yes. Can we actually, you know, create the inner, speak for them, create a representation of them? I personally felt back then was writing this book that, you know, we cannot. And instead we should actually try to, um, to approach the work as, as I said, as a historical geographer and try to reconstruct the patterns and movements instead of representing them. I, I, I feel just uncomfortable talking about representation in general, I think. Let me ask you something about the police, um, because I, I did it. I did an interview um, about um, the Polish about a year and a half ago, um, or but in the before times before COVID. Um, yeah, it was it was an interview I did with with Anna Krakos, who works on secret police files of the Polish uh, in the Polish communist period. Um, and and she described that, which I thought was really interesting, the police as an author of you know writing because they're writing reports and in many respects they're the author of you know everyday life. Okay. What about the police? It, what what do the police play a role in when you're reading these reports or the police documents? Play a role of writing homosexuality in Saint Petersburg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 I think I will respond to this question with yet another story from from the archive. It seems to me you like them, so I would use that yet another one. It's a story of young two men, Jochen and Dmitri. One of them came to the police station to report them that his friend disappeared. And constables actually did his best to try to understand what's going on, it seems to me, from the report. He was calling to nearby stations to find out were there any people missing there from reported missing there. And at the end of the protocol, the constable wrote, due to the questionable statements, we have to send this to the further investigations. And I think this questionable statements, that's that's where we get to the to your question, you know, how the police contributed to writing queer milieu, because they possesses, possess the knowledge of the milieu clearly. I could see from, from this protocol that they, he understood clearly that they were cruising on one of the major cruising sites in St. Petersburg. They were living together, despite the fact they were not working together, not living from the same, they were not originated from the same providence. So they were connected, they wanted, so they lived together because they wanted to live together. They cruised together. And at the end of their book, one of them gave a firewall present, a quite expensive Porsigar to another saying goodbye. So all of that seemed to be, I can use the word queer here to the constables. And he tried, his best to understand what's going on here and he was writing it down and he did some investigations so of course i think the constables on the bit contributed to you know they brought the queer milieu physically you know recording these stories it's one thing but also he was talking to that young um, man who was 21 right and listening to his story and trying to be sympathetic Hopefully, I don't know. This is me being a bit, you know, probably kind. But, um, you know, to some extent, I think, of course, police, you know, write their own story. And I think the role of a historian, or in my case, a historical geographer, to look at this 
and recognized it and try to, you know, put it against the grain to some extent and try to kind of understand the geography of the city and, you know, the, the, the fact that they couldn't use these words. You, you, they wouldn't use the word homosexuality or sodomy, mostly sodomy in police reports. They would, they would avoid it, as Kuzmin did in his novels even. So there was not, so, you know, if Kuzmin doesn't use it in his novel and still was charged for pornography, not a single mention of any sexual act in his book, not a single mention of homosexuality in his in his book being still charged for for pornography. So I think constables to some extent maybe adopted the same approach. And you know, there was this report, they don't mention anything explicitly, but you read between lines. And finally, what do you want readers to walk away with? I hope that the book kind of refines and partially revises the picture of St. Petersburg as a city in which Consensual, uh, consensual um, queer sexual practices encounter little resistance from the state. Instead, this resistance um, took a, new, a number of seemingly interconnected forms, for example, such as sanitary reforms, building regulations, city planning, infrastructure development, and discretionary policing, right? So this is a form of resistance not visible from the first glance, right? While not always effective, um, they are shaped the queer milieu, and many were articulated with queer men in mind, as some of my research shows. So maybe this is the first thing. So most of these measures left few, if any, traces in the documents typically consulted for the study of queer life, right? So court and medical court cases, public scandals, and uh, autobiographical accounts, right? So we don't have them. Um, we don't have them enough for St. Petersburg. But drawing into other more mundane, we can even say sources, the stories of men who got caught suddenly appear in a broader context, if I may to this. So this is the first probably thing. And the second one is queer histories, I think, still remain a, a very Western preoccupation. And my hope is that the book can be helpful um, is an example for the kind of archival archaeology um, of queer life that can shed light on the past of other non-Western cities. And many of these, similar to St. Petersburg, remain underexplored for of want of the relevant court cases, journalistic and autobiographical records. So I hope that other researchers will try out some of the approaches I proposed in the places they know best and where the queer milieu, if it existed, is pretty much forgotten. Maybe, yeah, so I, 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 I very much hope I'm hopeful that in coming years we might not, we might see more of this fascinating work on other cities whose past in that sense seem irretrievable. That was Olga Petrie. Olga Petrie is the Liverhume Newton Trust Early Career Research Fellow in the Department of Geography at the University of Cambridge. Her first book is Places of Tenderness and Heat, The Queer Milieu of Fantasy Eccles in Petersburg, published by Cornell University Press. Well, thank you very much, Rusana. Um, so what are some of the thoughts you had about this interview? I thought it was interesting how she decided to focus on space rather than identity. And I think this methodological um, move was informed by how people thought about themselves at the time. I thought the most interesting part for me is that, um, you know, like today in the U.S., if you're queer, gay, or um, trans, it's kind of, it's, it's an identity, it's it, it's a label that you kind of once you discover yourself, it's a label that you put on yourself and you wear it till the day you die in a way, you know, or unless you change your mind or whatever. But it's like it's about identity and it's politics. And I feel like back then people didn't think about their desire, didn't think about their sexual interest necessarily in terms of a firm identity that you choose um that that you stick to and i feel like the fact that people themselves didn't think of homosexuality as an identity also informed her own approach to, to talk about like spaces encounters experiences rather than 
identity politics or anything like that. Well, I, I think so. Th this raises like the there are two issues here. So one is about the history of homosexuality in general, in the sense that it's not. I had it explained to me by a historian at some point where homosexuals did not exist throughout time, though, but homosexual acts did. And the difference being you didn't have people identifying themselves through their sexuality, right? This is a, this is something that is a really modern notion that develops, you know, at, at earliest 19th century and really the 20th century when it becomes a particular category that is both, as you said, like a, one that's adopted as an identity, but also one that's ascribed, right? You get the creation of something called the homosexual right through a variety of different you know relations so that's the and and there i think you're right like there isn't the there isn't the development of this or you maybe the beginnings of a development of an identity through sexual practice but because it's not fully formed or easily identifiable in this instance this i think the importance of the spatial uh, analysis does exactly what you said right it allows for okay how do you locate these people in their practices and what is the and what is the relationship to say urban space to develop to the development of a particular culture or community practices both in terms of you know the dynamic of repression but also finding community in others and i i think the spatial thing is is it is attractive to me because I also think about my own kind of young youth and being participating in a variety of different marginalized communities and how important particular spaces were to us. Yeah, and how certain places that were not meant to be, like um, they were not they were not meant to be spaces of uh, queer encounters they became such spaces like the that this big swimming pool in moscow right where there used to be uh, this big cathedral it became a space of queer encounters throughout soviet history pretty much um and also it, the conversation about bathhouses was very interesting when i was doing ethnography in western siberia in an indigenous community um, I came across the use of a bathhouse <laughs> for a queer encounter, uh, by two of my friends. And, and, and another thing that kind of connects it to the book, to Olga's book is that no, like everyone knew that those two men went into the bathhouse to engage in sex. Right. But no one called them homosexual. Or no one even thought about, you know, putting that kind of identity on them. Each of them had a wife and kids and everything. And I was so, at the time, coming from the U.S., I was so perplexed. Like, why are they not scandalized by this? Or why do they not come out of a closet, so to say, you know? And after coming back from the field, I had this really lengthy discussion with Lawrence Cohen, one of our professors, who... Uh, who exactly talked to me about this difference between uh, kind of homosexualities and identity and homosexual acts as like the thing that people practice, but they do not influence kinship structure or kinship ties. They're not kind of like part of this official um, social um, structuring of society, if I can, if, if I'm making myself clear. And this is one of the things, the bathhouse is, is a curious thing because, and this is where I wanted, she didn't really address it, but one of the things I was hoping she would talk about is the bathhouse is interesting in the Russian context because it is a really important place for masculinity. And, and I always wondered if, because of it being a very intimate place, vulnerable place of, for men, and only men, 
that is also, you know, as your example gave a place for homosexual sex and desire and pleasure is if the, there's a certain, does the bathhouse function as a safe zone of sorts between, or a liminal place between out there and here, you know, but like that, that, that slogan they use for Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know much about bathhouses, but I would imagine, I wonder about that. For sure. I would definitely agree with that. A banya is, 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 is a space that exists outside regular order of life. Um, and things that happen in the banya, like f not necessarily sexual things, but it could be just, for example, when I was in Sahalin, I went to banya a lot with one of my key respondents uh, very often. And the kinds of conversations that this space allowed would never happen in other in in another house or outside in the street because it create it's a space of intimacy not necessarily physical intimacy but you know where people confide into each other and open up and have very in-depth conversations about life and everything really and even like i see your point about masculinity how you know it's a space where men have to be men but i also feel like the kinds of interactions that men who are not queer have in the banya to an outside perspective would seem like they are engaging in homosexual interactions but they are not and they would never think of them as such and i don't think that they're being insincere it's just that that space has different kinds of rules of engagement between people. Yeah, that, and that's that's actually what I, I I didn't think to ask Olga is if there were spaces of, you know, we're essentially talking about liminal spaces, right? These spaces that exist outside, as you said, the the regular order of things, the regular rules of everyday life, and you know these kind these types of of places are really important for marginalized people and communities for safety, for a different set of rules, for intimacy, um, both physical and, you know, emotional. Uh, and, and I wonder if there were any places on the streets of St. Petersburg at that time that were, because of the way they were coded, they served at least within that community of say gay men or queer men that it functioned as one of those kind of liminal spaces where people who, you know, who say don't see themselves as quote unquote homosexuals can still engage in homosexual sex. All right. Well, thank you very much for your comments, Rusana. Uh, as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm here with Rusana Novikova. Uh, as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners just like you. Uh, if you like this podcast, please help us out and share it on social media. Tell all your friends and family. Uh, it's a nice gift for the end of summer. Uh, you could also drop us a line and let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org. Um, drop us a note. And as always, we'd love to have your support. The SRB Podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free of paid advertising. Uh, so help us keep it that way. Uh, so go to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Until next time, bye.